morning, everybody. How are we all doing? Man, it's so cold outside. The, the worst, you know what the worst part is? Is the way the snow sounds when you step on it. Oh, I hate it. I hate it so much. Um, we, are, <laughs> we are in the second week of our introduction of the book of Revelation. Um, if you weren't with us last week, we are tackling this book at the beginning of 2024. We're going to be in it for about nine or ten months throughout the year. And um, the first three Sundays are just going to be background to the book before we dive into the text um, specifically. Um, if you are, have a Bible with you, you can turn to Revelation chapter 1. If you are using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1089. Uh, and as always, if you have any questions about anything that comes up th- during the message today, you can go to slido.com, type in RevCDA in the prompt, and ask your questions, and we'll take a look at those at the end. So let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you so much for uh, your presence among your people. God, there is something special that takes place when we gather on the Lord's day to worship you. And um, we just help us to see it, help us to hear it, help us to feel it. God, you are never far away from us, but we make choices in our hearts and our minds and our actions to turn ourselves away from you. And I just pray that we would be people that are aware of that and and, and turn towards you to seek your face this morning. Uh, I pray that you teach us through your word, Uh, Some of these things can feel dry and academic, but God, I think they matter, and I just pray that we would be attentive. Um, God, this this book gives us a blessing for those that read it and hear it and obey it. I just pray that we would um, take that blessing seriously. God, I pray for all of the children in the room this morning. God, we love them so much, and I pray for the parents who are inevitably going to feel uh, awkward and anxious if their kid is the one making noise at any particular moment, and I just pray for peace. Uh, and uh, just uh, relax, a relaxed spirit, because that's, all, that's okay. Uh, like Brian said, that, that these are sounds of a healthy church, and I, I just pray that um, we would rejoice together um, in that this morning. God, I, I pray also for just this season of cold weather for those uh, that do not have shelter. God, I, I pray for safety, uh, for security, um, that you would care for the least of these in our community in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, I saw a billboard for an HVAC company, and it was a picture of a repairman holding up a bill. And the bill said, $2,000 replaced flux capacitor. If you're not familiar, the flux capacitor is the part of the DeLorean in Back to the Future that allows it to travel through time. The point of the billboard was that a random company was going to rip you off and you needed to hire, I I, I don't know, I think it was Bills, uh, to do your HVAC work. Maybe you've experienced something similar with your vehicles. Not all of us here know a lot about cars, and so your car is is acting up and you have to go to the mechanic and they say like, oh, yeah, we need to relubricate your overdrive chains. That'll be $1,000. And you go like, I don't know what that is, but here's $1,000. If you're ignorant about how a system works, you can be taken advantage of, can't you? 
You have to trust people to tell you the truth. And, and this kind of thing can happen with the scriptures too. Someone comes along either in person or, or probably on the internet, and they tell you something like, uh, you know, we don't even know who wrote the book of Revelation. We can't be sure when it was written. Can we even believe anything that it says? And they plant a seed in your heart that helps you to doubt. You don't know anything about that. You've never, you never dug underneath the hood into the scriptures like that. And this person maybe seems like an authority. And many people's faiths have been shipwrecked because of that kind of accusation. I think there's a real good-hearted impulse in the church, among church leaders, to protect their congregations from academic theological debates, to kind of leave that in their study and not bring it to the people because it's not really about our daily lives. Let's just read the book and focus on Jesus, and we're going to do a lot of that. But I also think today, maybe more than ever, because of all the voices that we hear in our culture that if we aren't at least a little bit familiar with the under the hood of the scriptures, we are vulnerable to being spiritually ripped off by people who either out of their own ignorance or because of nefarious motives want to harm our faith. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at four questions surrounding the book of Revelation. We're going to look at the question, who is the author of this book? Who is the audience of this book? When was it written and why? And we'll get to some, a little bit of application towards the end, but a lot of this, again, is just going to be for our own knowledge. Some of you maybe have studied this, you know this, others of you haven't, but I think it's important to understand how this book that we understand to be the inspired word of God, how it works. So the first question that we're going to take a look at is who is the author? Revelation 1, verse 1 says the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Revelation 1, 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance therein Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So based on those two verses, who is the author? Anybody? John, right? Good. Tracking. But it's more complicated than that. There's a few different possibilities because John doesn't really say who he is. He just says he's John. So over the years, different ideas have been floated, and I want to give you three of them and in order from what I think is least likely to what is most likely. Some scholars would say that this person that is writing the book of Revelation is writing under a pseudonym. They're, they're not John, but they're writing in the name of John. And this is actually pretty common in apocalyptic writing. We talk about the book being apocalyptic last week. That's the, one of the genres of the book. And if we look at other apocalyptic books like First Enoch or Fourth Ezra or the Apocalypse of Baruch, all of these people are long dead when these books are written. Enoch is the, the sixth uh, generation from Adam. But the book of Enoch was written about, give or take, 100 years from when Jesus was born. Thousands of years from when Enoch actually lived. And yet the author of 1 Enoch says, Enoch is writing this book. And this is really common in this genre. 
And it's not that the authors are lying. It's just the way that the genre tended to work. I remember when I was younger, we used to go to North Idaho College for what, what they called the Popcorn Forum. And they would have local historians and authors and professors come out on stage dressed as Thomas Jefferson or Mark Twain, and they would give a lecture as if they were that character. And nobody watched that lecture and went, you're a liar, you're not Mark Twain. No, they were acting like Mark Twain for a reason. They were embodying that character to get across a certain point. And this was the, the reason why authors used pseudonyms in the early centuries of uh, of, of the A.D. years. So with Revelation, it's an apocalyptic book. Some would say that this author is unknown and that they're using the name of a famous apostle as a pen name. There's a couple issues with this, though. The first one is that John isn't the clearest pseudonym. Greg Beale says, if an unknown author were attempting to identify himself with a well-known Christian figure like the Apostle John, he would probably call himself not just John, but John the Apostle. The fact is, if someone is trying to pretend to be famous in the book of Revelation, he's not doing a very good job of it. The second reason that this is unlikely is that the Christians in the early centuries of the church, they didn't like pseudonyms. There's this book called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. It was written in about 160 AD by one of the elders in the churches in Asia, similar area that we're looking at in Revelation. And the church father, Tertullian, wrote about this book. He says, the writings which wrongly go under Paul's name, let them know that in Asia, the presbyter who composed that writing as if he were augmenting Paul's fame from his own store, after being convicted and confessing that he had done it from a love of Paul, was removed from his office. So this elder in this church thought he would write a book and call it, say he was Paul writing in order to um, celebrate Paul, and he got caught doing it and they fired him pretty big deal. Paul himself seems to indicate that false letters in his name have already been circulating during his lifetime. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, do not be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or a message or by a letter supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. So we have very little evidence in Christian history that Christians liked pseudonyms. They were pretty anti-pseudonyms in their writing. Another, exam- another possibility is, could be that this could be some other John. John's a, there's a lot, of, a lot of people named John, right? A lot of people today named John. We know that the author of Revelation calls himself John, but that's really all we know. He's connected to this community of seven churches. He is their brother and partner in Verse 9, in chapter 22, we read, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you, your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So John is, is part of this community of prophets. And there's some tradition in the early church that there were two Johns who lived in Ephesus in the first century. And this second John, sometimes called John the Elder, is the author of Revelation. 
Uh, we have s- some works from a father named Papias who seems to say this. Eusebius, the church historian in the fourth century, kind of uh, gloms onto what Papias said. But if there are two well-known Johns in Asia in the first century, this makes the author of Revelation pretty poor in his self-identification, right? He doesn't, he doesn't clear up who he is. If it's obvious that there are two Johns going around speaking to these churches, he just doesn't do a very good job telling us which John it is. Now, I'm going to talk about in a minute what I, th- I think that this is John the Apostle, but if you hold a different view, if you believe that this isn't John the Apostle, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. The book doesn't say that it's John the Apostle, and so there's nothing to say that it couldn't be a different John. There are many Bible-believing, Jesus-following scholars that like this other John theory. One of the benefits of this theory is that the writing style and the Greek in the book of Revelation is very different from the gospel. George Ladd says, while there are numerous similarities between the two books, only in the fourth gospel in Revelation is Jesus called the Logos, the style of the Greek is strikingly different. The language of the gospel is smooth and fluent and couched in accurate and simple Greek. The idiom of the Revelation is rough and harsh with many grammatical and syntactical irregularities. We'll talk, about more, we'll talk more about that next week, and as we go through the book, I think there's good reasons for that. But the third possibility for who wrote this book, and the one that I think is probably most likely, is that it was John, the apostle of Jesus. This is by far the majority opinion of the early church. Justin Martyr, in about 135, says that John, the apostle, wrote this book. Irenaeus, in about 175, he quotes Revelation frequently, and says that it is from John, the disciple of the Lord. Irenaeus is important because Irenaeus became a Christian under the discipleship of a man named Polycarp, and Polycarp was a student of John. And so he's like two generations away from John himself. Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian both quote Revelation extensively, and they both say that John wrote it. So I think when you ask the question, who wrote this book? What makes the most sense to me is that we're talking about John, the apostle of Jesus. So who is the audience? Verse 11 of chapter 1, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So who is the audience? These seven churches. And I've got some pictures here just so we can orient ourselves. This is the Mediterranean Sea you can see, uh, well, you can't see Spain, it's over there, but you can see the boot of Italy, you can see Greece and all of its islands, and then you can see Turkey. We're going to zoom in on Turkey on the next slide. This is the west coast of Turkey, Patmos. That's the island that John is on. And then you can see these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They're just kind of smattered onto Turkey. But when you go to this next slide, you see that there's all these mountains. And the most normal way to get to these cities would be to go on the roads in the valleys between the mountains in the exact order that the letters are presented in the book of Revelation. And so John's, it seems like John's purpose is to write this book, send it to seven churches by a messenger who hits Ephesus first 
and then goes to Smyrna, and then goes to Pergamum, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea, because that's the way the roads work. When was it written? This is a harder question, because I learned in school that when you write a letter, you put the date in the upper right-hand corner, right? John doesn't do this, unfortunately. The, the date of the authorship of this book matters because it changes the way you understand the prophecy. Last week during the Q&R, there was a question about the destruction of the temple. We'll talk a lot about that as we go through the book. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70. It was this cataclysmic event for the Jewish faith. And if you take a view that Revelation is talking about that set of circumstances, the destruction of the temple, and if you believe that it's actually prophecy, then it has to have been written before the destruction of the temple. If you write prophecy after the events happen, it's not really prophecy, right? But if John wrote after the destruction of the temple in the year 70, then he can't be prophesying about things that have happened in the past. He has to be looking to the future. It can't be about the destruction of the temple. And so there's two major opinions about when this book was written. One is during the reign of Nero, somewhere between 64 and 68, before the temple's destroyed. And the other is in the reign of Domitian, somewhere between 81 and 96. The late date, the Domitian date, somewhere probably at the end of his reign between 95 and 96, this is the majority view. Irenaeus again, who again knew Polycarp, who knew John, he says, for it was seen not long, talking about the revelation, it was seen not long ago, but almost in our generation near the end of Domitian's reign. Because of this statement in Irenaeus, almost everyone in the early centuries of the church held to this view. Some other reasons why this makes sense. This book is about persecution. The church is suffering to some extent. We know that Nero persecuted Christians in Rome, but not because they wouldn't worship him. He was looking for someone to blame for the great fire that he probably started, if you remember that from history class. There is some evidence of persecution in the church for not worshiping the emperor during the reign of Domitian. There's a letter in 112 from a Roman governor named Pliny. He's talking, he's writing to the emperor and he's writing about what to do with these Christians. And he's telling the emperor what he's been doing when he finds someone that's a Christian. He, he captures them and he interrogates them. And he says, others named by the informer declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been, but had ceased to be some three years before. Others, many years, some as much as 25 years. They all worshiped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. So he says that there are some people in his jurisdiction that have stopped being Christians 25 years ago, which would line up with persecution in the reign of Domitian. Clement, in the year 96, talks about persecutions that they are suffering in Rome. 
Another piece of evidence for a late date is the condition of the churches. I'll give you a couple examples. In Ephesus, we read in chapter 2, verse 4, but I have this against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Greg Beale says this could mean that the church had done so within only a few years of its establishment, but the language may fit better a longer development, perhaps so that the church was in its second generation of existence. Paul founded the church at Ephesus just a few years before this 60 to 80 date range. And if they've already left their first love, if if they've become a church that Jesus can criticize in this way, it seems weird that it happens so quickly. Now, we we could all probably talk about our church experience and go, I don't know, it probably could happen pretty quickly. But it seems more likely that this is the second generation or third generation of Christians at Ephesus that Jesus is critiquing. In Laodicea, Jesus says in chapter three, for you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We know that Laodicea was completely destroyed by an earthquake in the year 60. So if Revelation was written in the 90s, that would have given the Laodiceans enough time to rebuild their city and regain their wealth. If Revelation was written in the 60s, it seems like they would have been pretty poor having just been destroyed by this earthquake. Smyrna, Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna, in 110 says, for concerning you, he's writing to the Philippians, he boasts in all the churches who then alone had known the Lord, for we had not known him yet. Polycarp says that when Paul is writing his letter to the Philippians, the church at Smyrna didn't exist. So again, there's a question. Did the church of Smyrna get to a point where it is founded and becomes a flourishing church enough for Jesus to write them this letter in just a few years? Or would it be better to think that this takes place in the 90s? But there's also evidence for the early date. Some scholars believe that the book of Revelation was written during the reign of Nero in the 60s. A couple reasons for this. The temple in Jerusalem. In chapter 11, we read, Then I was giving a measuring reed like a rod with these words, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Early date advocates like Ken Gentry take this passage at face value and point out that the siege of Jerusalem by the Romans just prior to the destruction of the temple in the year 70 lasted for 42 months. And that this passage makes the most sense if John is talking about the actual temple in Jerusalem at the time. Another piece of evidence, Revelation 17 says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for only a little while. Generally, these kings are taken to mean Roman empires under this, Roman emperors under this view. And if you count them, Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, number six is Nero. And again, if you read this at face value, the one who is the sixth king would be Nero. The seventh king that must remain for only a little while 
would be Galba, who reigned after Nero for about six months before he was assassinated. And then maybe the most, um, in my mind, convincing piece of evidence for an early date is the language of imminence throughout the book. Remember, we read it in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Revelation 22 says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And early date advocates would say that the book is prophecy written in the late 60s about events that are immediately going to take place in the 70s about Jerusalem temple. So which view is right? I have no idea. (laughs) This is one place of many, as we work through this book, that there are really convincing arguments on both sides. There are, again, good, faithful Christian scholars that have dedicated their lives to the study of this book and come down either way. The view of J.P.M. Sweet, though, I think is, is a helpful one. He says, to sum up, the earlier date may be right, but the internal evidence is not sufficient to outweigh the firm tradition stemming from Irenaeus. So this argument basically says we don't have any reason to doubt Irenaeus's word here. And remember, Irenaeus learns to be a Christian from Polycarp who learned to be a Christian from John. The only reason, however, that you need to argue for an early date, like I said earlier, is if you are committed to reading this in a way that says that it is fulfilled at the destruction of the temple in the first century. Next week, we'll talk about different ways to read the book. That's, that's called a preterist view, if you're familiar with that word. Uh, it means that most of the prophecies in the New Testament focus on the destruction of the temple in the first century. I think the late date probably makes the most sense. I could be wrong. Last question for this morning. Why was this book written? What is the purpose of this book? Verse 9, again, we read, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John has been banished to this prison island for being a Christian. We learn a little bit more of the story, at least in legend from Tertullian, talking about Rome. He says, you have Rome from which there comes even into our own hands the very authority of the apostles themselves. How happy is its church on which the apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's. Tradition holds that he was crucified upside down in Rome, where Paul wins his crown like a, in a death like John the Baptist, that he was beheaded for his faith in Rome, where the apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil and thence remitted to his island exile. We learn from Tertullian that the story goes that, that John is to be killed for being a Christian, and so they dip him in a pot of boiling oil, and for some reason, he doesn't die. And so, deciding that they can't kill him, they just exile him to the island of Patmos. 
for his faith. And John writes from there, he says he's experiencing persecution. He's in exile for being a Christian. And he loops the churches into that. He says that they are his partner. But it doesn't seem like, at least while he's writing, that a lot of persecution is actually going on. In the letter to Smyrna, Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you. You will experience affliction for 10 days. Be faithful to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. So the church at Smyrna is warned that suffering is coming. It isn't quite here yet. Pergamum, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. This is a little bit strange that, that there's like one guy in Pergamum that Jesus points out was martyred for his faith. That's significant, that matters, but it doesn't seem like it's widespread. So if the church isn't in the midst of a great persecution, what is John writing about? A.Y. Collins says, John is writing to point out a crisis that many of them did not perceive. As we continue to read through the book and read through the letters to the seven churches in chapters two and three, we're going to get a feel for the situation. John is saying that suffering is coming for the sake of the kingdom. It's not quite here yet, but it's on the horizon. There are pockets of it. John has been exiled. Specific leaders have been targeted. But Jesus' words to the churches are designed to get them prepared for what is coming. J. Ramsey Michaels says it this way, John sees the church and the empire on a collision course. And the churches, he says, are John's partners in three things that are clues to the purpose of the book. Affliction, kingdom, and endurance in Jesus. The kingdom of Christ is constituted by the people of God. And it is by default in opposition to the kingdom of the world. We're going to see this time and time again through the the book. The people of God and the people of the world are at war. It's government. It's politics. It's culture. And the seven churches are either being encouraged or warned about their posture toward it. Persecution is coming. How are you going to deal with it? Are you going to endure it or are you going to compromise? Many of the churches have taken positions of compromise. They've felt the pain of persecution and they've stepped back from the gospel in order to remain safe. And they're going to be chastised for that. So let's talk about persecution for a minute. There's a lot of it going on in the book, and we need to remember some things when we talk about persecution. The scriptures promise that the church will be persecuted to the extent that it acts like Jesus. Paul says in 2 Timothy, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We go from godliness to persecution, not persecution to godliness. And this is important because sometimes bad things happen to Christians and we go, oh, I'm being persecuted, just like Jesus said. Not necessarily. You might just be a jerk, right? There's a a story from a few years ago from uh, from Phoenix. A guy um, added a 2,000 square foot addition to his house 
in his suburb and started hosting church services there with 80 some odd people and communion and worship. And he created a 501c3 and was taking an offering. And that was against the zoning laws. And he was warned that he couldn't do that over and over and over again until finally they arrested him and put him in jail for 60 days for something like 90 zoning violations. And he said, I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian. No, you're being thrown in jail because you're breaking the law because you can't do that here. It has nothing to do with your faith. Maybe you know the story a little bit closer to home of, of the man who was violating his HOA policy concerning his Christmas lights. And the cry was, look, I'm being persecuted for my faith. No, you're just obnoxious to your neighbors. This kind of thing is not persecution. In order to be persecuted for being a Christian, you need to be acting like Christ, right? First Peter, we read this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ, the Lord is holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, the hope for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." And I think we need to really hold on to that idea. As we look around us in our country, there tends to be sometimes kind of a persecution complex that we have. Anytime that the church is um, marginalized in any way, we say, oh, we're being persecuted. And I, I think I understand that because we live in relative ease, don't we? We are generally comfortable. We don't feel persecuted, generally. We read stories about China and Malaysia and Africa in the present day. People being imprisoned for their faith. People being murdered for being Christians. And we think, well, I'm not experiencing that. But the Bible says, if I really want to be a Christian, I need to be persecuted. So anytime something negative happens, we need to say, oh, I'm being persecuted. That's the the rubber stamp of my faith. But I think we need to be careful. We need to ask ourselves, are we really being persecuted because we are Christians or are we just being obnoxious? Are we being wicked, evil, like Peter says? Are we acting like Jesus and this is the response that we're getting or are we acting not like Jesus and people don't like it? Having said all that, there is real persecution of Christians in this country. I want to share you with one story from a church in our network. I've shared this story before, but the day after Roe versus Wade was overturned, Hinson Church in downtown Portland, uh, they have a crisis pregnancy center on their property. I'll read you part of this story. Um, They got warning that a, a crowd was going to descend on their building that morning. The crowd marched around the entire city block, chanting the sort of slogans you've heard on the news since Roe was overturned. There was a heavy police presence in the neighborhood as this had been openly organized with calls for violence and direct action. The authorities had warned us a couple of hours earlier, so most 
of our ground floor tenants had already removed sensitive or personal belongings. As the crowd approached, the people contracted to board up the ground floor windows, understandably and wisely withdrew the job only half finished. After circling the block, a group of well-prepared and fully masked individuals broke off. Using umbrellas and masks to shield their identities from security cameras, they smashed almost every ground floor window on the side of the building that hadn't yet been boarded up and covered the building in vile graffiti aimed specifically at Christians. The damage was done in just moments. With the rest of the marchers whose masks largely shielded the vandals from view, they then marched back to the park, shedding their black Antifa-style clothing on the way. They got in their cars and left, but not before some drove around the block, taunting the police, calling them pigs, and telling them to solve real crimes. The level of organization and coordination was striking, including sending a scout 30 minutes before the rally to photograph the security cameras and note how to avoid being identified. This is Michael Lawrence, their pastor, writing, by the way. As I stood on the other side of the tape that night, one of my associate pastors who lives on the block walked out on his backyard. It was filled with non-Christian neighbors who were shaken up by the event. He and his wife were comforting them and using the opportunity to explain our hope in Christ. Then the manager of our coffee shop walked up to me. She told me of all the regulars who would arrive in the morning. Many of them, she said, would express sympathy and concern. We thought together of what she and her staff could say in response that would make clear that while we're not surprised, Jesus warned us of the world's hatred, we're not filled with hatred in return. We love our city and our neighborhood because Jesus loves us and loves them too. Our neighbors sense this even if they don't understand it. Why else would several of them show up late that night to offer help wood, and tools as we boarded up the broken windows. Their distress at our trouble and readiness to help us wasn't because they agree with us, but it could be because they've seen our good works and so give glory to our Father who is in heaven. I share that story not not to celebrate how amazing these particular Christians are, but to illustrate the kind of lives that we are capable of living when we really believe the gospel. When we believe that Jesus has really bought us with his own blood, he has given us eternal life through his resurrection from the dead, and he sits on the throne of the universe in ultimate control of the future. When we deny ourselves what we think we are owed and let his spirit inside us direct our words and our actions, This is what the church looks like. This is the kind of Christian presence that changes communities. And it always involves sacrifice, taking up our cross, denying our own rights. And oftentimes it involves suffering of some kind. And over and over and over again throughout this book, we are going to be reminded of that fact that when the world comes after the people of God because they are the people of God, The Christians respond with the gospel and with love for those that are even their enemies. The seven churches all have a different posture towards the world and their place in it. Some are are quietly, faithfully following Jesus, and Jesus is going to encourage them to continue even to the point of death. Others are compromising with the world. They're mixing their faith with false religion and trying to navigate not making waves 
by participating in its false worship. Brian Tabb says, Revelation's symbolic visions challenge readers to resist worldly compromise, spiritual complacency, and false teaching. They also encourage embattled believers to persevere in faithful witness and hope in the present and future reign of God and the Lamb. The visions offer a divine perspective on what is true, valuable, and lasting. They expose the true nature of the world's ungodly, political, cultural, economic, and religious system destined for destruction, and they reorient believers' worldviews and values around God's eternal kingdom. So as we continue to work through this book this year, we will be challenged, possibly more than other Christians who live in more explicit contrast with the world. It's incredibly easy for us to compromise our faith because our freedom in this country makes the lines pretty blurry. In some ways, it would be a lot easier for all of us if your pastors were getting thrown in jail just for being Christians. Maybe not for me and Brian, but for the rest of you to go like, I know what side I'm on, right? If laws were being passed that made our gatherings illegal, there's clarity in that. But just like in the first century and the persecution that's beginning to stir in Asia Minor, the lines are blurry. And John's visions teach the seven churches and will teach us what it looks like to be faithful. They will encourage us that Jesus is on the throne of the universe and no matter what's going on in the world right now, his kingdom is on the way. Let's do some Q&R. I have heard that the seven churches are in modern-day Turkey. Is there significance to the fact that God does not mention the church in Israel in his seven letters? They are in modern-day Turkey. I think it's significant that there are seven Gentile churches, non-Jewish churches. There's a lot of other churches that could have been chosen. Uh, in what's called Asia Minor. I think they're churches that John has a connection with. Um, Seven is an important number that we're going to take a look at as we go. I don't know that there's anything else that we can glean from that at this point, though. Other than the book of Revelation, what are some good resources to explore as we go through this study at church? Ooh. It depends on what you want to learn about, um, there is a, uh, there's a really good book on the church's relationship to the government uh, called The Political Gospel, I think. I think we have it in the library by Patrick Schreiner. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because it, it takes a look at Romans 13, which says that Christians should submit to the governing authorities. And it takes a look at Revelation 13, which says that the government is a ravenous beast that wants to kill us. And it kind of works through that tension in a really interesting way. Um, I'd recommend that one offhand. If you're interested in the book of Revelation as a whole, there's a book called uh, Reading Revelation Responsibly by Michael Gorman, which is excellent. I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but I think his posture towards the book is really helpful. 
how should we interact with books like Enoch? If they're not a part of the Bible, do we believe them as truth or just stories? That's such a really good question. I don't know. Um, Jude quotes the book of Enoch in his letter, and he uses it to make a point about judgment. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's scripture. It's on par with scripture. It's even entirely true. But it does mean that at least to the early Christians, it was a valuable resource for helping to understand the world. Uh, if you were with us when we went through the early chapters of Genesis, um, Genesis 6 is about the sons of God seeing the daughters of men, that they're beautiful and coming down to them and the Nephilim, and it's crazy. Uh, the book of Enoch talks a lot about that and adds a lot of details to that story that was definitely in the water at the time that the New Testament was written. Whether or not we should take all of that at face value is kind of an open question, though. It's very interesting, though, as a book. If you, you can, it's free online. You can read it. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Regarding the outdoor gathering in Moscow, Idaho, during COVID, where people were arrested, would you say that was persecution? <laughs> Not trying to be political. <laughs> Not, are you, though? Um, <laughs> I, I am not in a position to judge what other uh, elders over local churches choose to do as they lead their churches. Um, when we make choices to be defiant towards the government, I think we need to have a clear reason why they are asking us to do something that goes against the will of God. In the book of Acts, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin tell the apostles to stop preaching, and they say, we, who are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to God or man? And in that scenario, it seems very clear to me that the Sanhedrin were telling them to do something in opposition to the command of God. Um, whether or not the masking rules in the state of Idaho or anywhere else in the country rose to that level is kind of an open question. And it's, it's a deeply theological question about how the church is supposed to interact with the government, about um, practices of worship, uh, about uh, governmental overreach. If, so if you are going to come out and say that we are not going to mask and we are going to have this gathering that in some way goes against the dictates of the state... I think you need to be prepared with a theological reason why God, God's commands to you are in opposition to the government. And then secondly, I think you need to be ready and willing to take the consequences for those actions. And I don't know enough about that story to know how it went down, but what we're going to see throughout this book is that the Christian church that says, we are not going to put up with what the government is doing here. We are not going to submit to the beast. We are not going to take his mark. They're ready to die for that. And I think sometimes we get the impression that when we push back against the government and we're persecuted, then that gives us the right to fight back, to take matters into our own hands. And a lot of that comes from the long history of the United States and how we see ourselves as people. But we don't see that in the scriptures. We see Christians willing to defy unjust laws and also willing to accept the consequences of defying those laws. Um, so I know that probably doesn't completely answer the question, and I don't know enough detail about what on went, what went on down there. Um, but I think those are some principles that individual church leaders and congregations need to weigh if they're going to um, step into 
um, uh, civil disobedience. So, yeah, for what it's worth. Good questions. We're going to take communion. As we think about revelation, as we think about faithfulness, as we think of what we're called to, the people of God are called to be, to give their allegiance to the Lamb. The Lamb is on the throne. Jesus Christ is, on, is the King of the universe. He walks among the, the seven churches and he requires our allegiance. We call this meal a sacrament. The word sacrament is a Latin word that initially meant the Roman military oath. When someone joined the Roman army, they would take the sacramentum, which is their oath of allegiance to the Caesar. And the Christian church took that word, that oath of allegiance church, and started calling this meal the sacrament. And so this morning, this is our sacrament, not to Rome, not the United States, not to the world, but to the kingdom of Jesus. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you're going to be invited to come down and take the bread and the cup, take it back to your seat. And I would encourage you to reflect on your allegiance to Christ, because this sort of thing is the reason that Christians were persecuted in the early centuries of the church because of what happens at this table. If you read the letters from the Roman governors, they don't care if you worship Jesus, but they do care if you will only worship Jesus. If you can, if you can be a Christian on Sunday and offer incense to Caesar on Monday, nobody cares. But if you say, no, my sole allegiance is to Christ, that's when people were thrown to the lions. That's when people's heads were removed from their bodies. And so this thing that we do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday is a, turns out to be a really big deal. And not to get too apocalyptic, but if real systemic persecution comes to this nation, your participation at this table will be the sign of your rebellion. So the band's going to come up. We're going to sing. I would encourage you, if you're a Christian here this morning, to come and take the elements back to your seat. Reflect on your posture towards your relationship with Jesus. Take the elements uh, when you're ready. There's wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience. We'll worship together. Um, if you would like to move around, you're welcome to sit or stand. You can come to the prayer rugs at the front and kneel. Um, sometimes changing the posture of your body helps change the posture of your heart. Just encourage you to spend some time in reflection with the Lord. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.